church. Uh, you can turn in your scriptures to Ephesians 4 if you want to follow along. But as you do that, I want to remind you if you were here last week, do not forget how Ephesians 3 wrapped up. And if you weren't here, I want to give you just a brief reminder of that. It wrapped up with that verse that we, uh, we really believe in around here, that we, we often mention that our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And we say that. And I want you to know that that doesn't just apply to the, to the big things that God is supposed to take care of. It works itself out in the power that manifests itself in you and I coming together to confess our unity. We don't create our unity by getting up, even if somebody's changed the time on us. Government. we, we, uh, we, We don't make our unity by getting together. We come here to confess, to acknowledge, to say we are unified. And even when we're traveling and we go and, you know, some of our team or some of our people are in Guatemala today. Some of our people are worshiping with other churches today. Some of you will be with other churches next week. Even still, we believe that we have a kind of unity with them. And so when we get together with them, we acknowledge that unity. That unity is the result of his power at work in us, giving us that unity, giving us the gifts that form that unity. And I'm going to be able to accomplish one thing in this sermon this morning because there's so much going on here, but there's one thing I want to do. And that is I want to raise again the importance of unity, that we need to prize it. We need to believe in it. We need to cherish it, and we need to keep it. In in the United States of America, in the 1800s, as this nation is just beginning, there were groups of people who believed that a simple Christianity, a Christianity just based on following Christ and uniting everybody in the basics of following Christ, they believed that that was possible. Now, you see that same spirit expressed today in what are often called non-denominational churches. Hey, I don't know this for sure, but we're one of the first of those in this nation. That's our heritage in this nation. But it's also our heritage in Christ. From the day that Christ blessed his disciples and said, you go and you make disciples in all of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything and keep everything that I've taught you, and I'm with you always. That unity in Christ, it's who we are. It's our legacy. It's our inheritance. And it's what everything in Ephesians up to this point has been talking about. Now we see him emphasizing how we ought to live it. So I want to read those first six verses therefore he's building off of all of that in chapter one two and three therefore paul says as a prisoner for the lord i urge you 
to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, who is through all, and who is in all. That's the Word of God on unity. Unity matters to God. And and I hope that you come away from this sermon this morning believing that if if the vision, if, if people really did have that vision that we could be one in Christ, then it's possible to, for us to have that same vision here today. And I don't think anything should rob us of that vision. Because here's the thing I want you to know. God, it's, it's worth the effort because it matters to God. God has that same vision. And if sadly... Our restoration movement or Christianity in this nation or in the world, if it has split at times and there's been more division than vision, well, that doesn't mean that we should abandon God's vision of unity. No, because Scripture is compelling us, it's urging us, based on His big plan, that it's worth the effort to do everything we can to maintain it. Why is it worth the effort? Well, it's worth the effort because in in verse 1, that's our calling. That's your purpose. Our purpose as the church is to fulfill God's big plan. God has this huge plan that he's, he's working through all of the cosmos and, he, and he's shown us what he's done in Jesus Christ and everything that he did in Jesus Christ, he wants to do that in us as well. He wants to bring glory or show his glory in Jesus Christ. He also wants to show his glory in the people who wear Christ's name. That's your calling. We have an identity that comes from that big, grand design of God, and that design involves oneness, unity. It's also our goal. When you read on in chapter 4, and by the way, if you were in my class this morning, the uh, unity is one of the words that's big here in chapter 4, but the next section has to do with maturity. Maturity is everybody growing together. God's building us together. And sometimes Paul goes between the image of building a house, but it's also growing a body. And both of those, he he mixes his metaphors. And I don't know, people told me you're not supposed to mix metaphors. Nobody told Paul that. And so there in Scripture, he's mixing metaphors, and we're building houses, and we're growing bodies. But it's all growing up according to the plan of God. And the goal is, is that we can all reach unity. So all of these different gifts that he's given us, unity, by the way, doesn't mean he's made us all the same. 
It means that that same Spirit has given out different gifts and abilities, but for the same purpose, the same responsibility, so that we can build one another up and so that we can all grow together into Christ, and Christ is the one who fits us together. Christians, hear this, Christians grow. Being a Christian is not like having a library card. I've had so many library cards in my life, and I've had so many library cards expire. And I can't say, you know, they've allowed me to go and read some books, and I've had some some interesting times at the library. I can't say that I've necessarily been changed because of my library card. In fact, often my library card is something that I have to renew when I go to the library and I want to check out a book. And by the way, just as a word of encouragement, here at our library, you don't have to have a library card. Everybody gets to the library through grace. How about that? But being a Christian is not like having a library card where you have certain privileges and then it may expire and you have to renew it. When you become a Christian, it's like life. You're born and you grow and you graduate. Christians grow, we mature. And I've got another news flash for you. Here's the big revelation of today. Christians get old. And thank God for old Christians. I don't know when old became a pejorative term. There there, there seems to be a lot of lament. Even some of the things that we say to encourage people. My grandfather used to say, growing old's not for sissies. Yeah, that's a good statement. But in some ways, it's lamenting the fact that growing old is somehow difficult. But there's something good about it as well. What's good about it, if you're a Christian, is you become a more perfect Christian along the way. Now, I know that seems a bit arrogant. It's not you. It's not that you become better, like like you somehow get special privileges. But it's as simple as this. Christ and the Spirit have just had a lot longer to work on you when you're an old Christian. You get seasoned in the Spirit. How's that? All right? You mature. And there's something good about it. And we need that. We need that. And it's, it's the engine that drives the church When you look at other scriptures, the old are meant to teach the young, to set them example, to show them how it is. And at any point, and by the way, old and young, it doesn't need to be pejorative because they're all relative terms. Right now, you're older than some people and you're younger than others. Okay? I I mean... Hey, they just found out there's a 112-year-old guy living in Israel. So he got the record. So you're younger than somebody, no no matter how old you are. But we need that example of a life lived in faith with both the the good things that have happened and also the way that we learn from those things that, that, that haven't gone so well. They say that when that when Mark was writing his gospel that he went to Peter and 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 his gospel contains a lot of Peter's memories of what happened if that's the case Peter sometimes comes off as a 
as a real goof-up sometimes, you know? That he gets it, but he doesn't quite get it. But if so, and I like to believe that there's some truth to this, then Peter is trying to tell a younger generation of Christians, don't make the mistake I made. You may think that following Christ is jumping on whatever political, messianic bandwagon is going on in this nation, but it's not. You had better really listen to Christ. And I think that's what mature Christianity does for us. It can tell us both how good God is and the kind of things that we need to watch out for. You see Paul the Apostle doing that as well. It is worth the effort to maintain oneness because it's our calling and it is our goal. But sometimes unity. I don't know. I wonder, what do you hear when you hear the word unity? I want to admit that there is a mistrust of unity because unity is often mistaken for other things. I remember going to the, uh, the island of St. Vincent in the, in the Caribbean. And I'm thinking about this because our, our, uh, our group uh, is on a trip to Guatemala right now. And, you know, and they have such wonderful fruits and vegetables down there. And I guess you have them here too, but I never noticed them. St. Vincent, the first time when I knew that there was something called a plantain. You know, you might think I was sheltered, but remember, this is 1987. And so, you know, the first time, and I remember listening to our van driver and his assistant going on and on arguing over whether this fruit was a banana or a plantain. It just went back and forth. It's a banana. No, it's a plantain. It's a banana. It's a plantain. It was like the Abbott and Costello of St. Vincent. They were just going on and on trying to name this, name this fruit. Unity sometimes gets mistaken for other things. And that's what causes us to mistrust unity because you know, whenever you get a preacher or somebody talking about unity, oh no, what's the agenda? What's he up to? Let me tell you this, unity is not uniformity. So if you have that natural urge to worry that unity means, unity means that we're all going to have to be the same. Unity means we're going to have to give up individuality. Unity means that we're going to have to give up what makes me unique. Not necessarily. It means you have to give up sin. It means you have to give up selfishness, but it doesn't mean you have to give up that which God gave you that helps you build up others. Uniformity is what you see in uh, political unity, military unity, athletic unity. There you need everybody to be the same. And that's why we have the idea of a uniform. You put a uniform on everybody. Why? Because we want sameness. But sameness is not the same thing as oneness. And by the way, that sameness makes those groups function rather well. But in the church, we're looking at more than sameness. We're looking at a oneness that's much greater than everybody being the same. Unity is sometimes mistaken, even more and more so these days, with pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that... um, Well, pluralism is sort of like a big stew. You just kind of throw everything together in there, and it's all one because it's all kind of brought together. It's the idea that there are many ideas, and I I don't want to be too negative on pluralism. It, It has its applications as well, that there may be many different ways to do something. There may be many different expressions, but pluralism is not the same thing as unity 
Because pluralism can be sort of a, sort of a, a peace or a truce between different ideas or people who really don't get along. And they really don't have a oneness. So pluralism doesn't even speak of oneness. It speaks of many that are linked together somehow. So what is unity against these things? Remember that oneness is unity in the biblical definition. Oneness. And, it, and even though there's differences, each part is part of the one whole. And each of us has been given a different gift, a different role, but we have one calling. And that one calling is to build up and grow the body of Christ so it may glorify Him. Our oneness then is based not on our effort, not on our effort to all wear the same uniform or on our efforts for everybody to coexist and get along. That would be uniformity and pluralism. But our oneness is based on God. And don't forget what has preceded this chapter. God, may, it was his will, it's his desire. He wants everybody to be one. And think about the task he had in the first century. God's people, his chosen, the children of Abraham, they saw themselves as one. And then the stunning news comes down that God is inviting in all of those other nations. You know that had to be alarming for those folks. But they didn't grow up like us. They're not connected to the family. They don't read the same scriptures. They don't have the same stories. How do they get in here? Well, the faithful ones go back. Read Acts 15. The faithful ones go back. They look at scripture. They look at what's going on, and they say, well, God has always intended for all people to be his family. That's always been his wish. That's always been his desire. And so when Paul is writing chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, he's saying, that's God's will. That's God's work. A long time ago, this was always his plan. And the oneness that we have now is because of what God is doing in Christ. We're part of something greater. We're joined together by Christ. We're fit together by Christ. So, you have a different basis of unity. And the way he describes it in Ephesians is the bond of peace. The thing that ties us together. The thing that links us together is that peace in Christ. Now, when you're talking about uniformity, or you're talking about pluralism, these different notions of unity, the way unity is enforced in those ideas is that if you do not unify, you are somehow punished. If you're not going to be a member of the team, we're going to suspend you. We're going to sit you out a game. You're going to have to learn to be a part of the team. If, if, if you're not tolerant of just anything that anybody wants to do, then we'll be intolerant at you for not being tolerant. And we have different ways of shunning people and shutting them out. Well then, okay, that's all good. Uh, maybe we're naming the problem. But tell me why Christianity is any better. Because of this thing called the bond of peace. And I wonder, do we really understand it? Because sometimes we can substitute the bond of peace for a church uniformity or a church pluralism. Now it happens. 
We have, we have our own idea. We ask people not to come to Christ, but to come to us. You know, there's two occasions where the apostles come to Jesus and they ask about other people. And, and Jesus says, if they're for me, they can't be against me. And the apostles, the problem that they have is they have a problem because they say, hey, that, those people out there who are doing miracles and doing work in your name, they're not with us. Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned that those people are not with his disciples. And yet they're wanting to control access to Jesus. Paul understands that the bond of peace ties us all up into God's spirit. You look at the things that make up the bond of peace, the things that he names here. There are seven ones in Ephesians 4. And by the way, each of the, they're kind of a, the, the first six are a couplet. There's one body and one Lord. I don't have these arranged very well up here. So I'll, do, I'll use my point. One body, one Lord. You've got one body, the church, and you've got one head of the church, that's the Lord. You have one spirit and one faith or one trust. The spirit is that which brings us into that faith. It's that it fuels that faith, that trust in God. And you have one hope and one baptism. I guess I didn't do too bad. They're kind of, you know, okay. So uh, that, that one hope is expressed in baptism. That's how you, 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 you come to that hope through baptism. And these, these things are considered important enough that Paul lists them as the, as the basis of unity. And it's all summed up with the seventh unity, with the seventh one, which is the one God who's the Father of all. Not some, not a select few, not the predestined chosen who are a few, with all. He's the Father of all, who's above all, and He's through all, and He's in all. That's the bond of peace. That is the bond of peace, and that's a high calling. And you and I are called to that, and we're called to live it out. Now, everyone is called to this. That's the other good news here. Everyone. Will some reject it? I guess they will. But I'm going to have the vision that everybody can be one in this. And that the things that divide us do not have to divide us. Not when we have oneness in this bond of peace. It's worth the effort. And that's why Paul says, make every effort. We see that same word for make every effort in Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews 4.11 says, make every effort to enter that Sabbath rest. And the way we interpret that is we understand that he's talking about our goal of reaching heaven. And I'm not taking, I'm not, I'm not going to diminish that at all. That's scripture. Hebrews 4.11, we need to make every effort to enter into that Sabbath rest. But I want to balance it. I want to balance it with this word in Ephesians 4. That we should also make every effort to keep the oneness that is in the bond of peace. So think of it like this. If heaven is our eternal objective, then keeping unity ought to be our earthly objective. We need to grow up. 
We need to grow up and we need to move beyond and we need to embrace a Christianity that doesn't just see church as this big waiting room until Jesus comes back and we all get sorted out as to who's going to heaven and who's not. Because sometimes that's what we do. You're baptized. Now what do I do? Well, by all means, stay out of trouble until Jesus gets back. Because we, we, we don't know what to do with you. If you mess up at this point, we've already cleaned you up. Never understood why people got upset about clean laundry getting dirty. Isn't that the whole point? I just cleaned those pants, mother says to a child. Well, yeah. We'll clean them again. You know, I mean, what's the point? If you're going to keep them clean, then just stick them in a drawer. Never bring them out again. What's the point of owning other clothes then? You'll end up like the people on Gilligan's Island who wear the same thing. And I, to this day, don't know what those people wore on wash day. Especially not the skipper in Gilligan. But I got your attention now. Now let's talk about the things that really matter. Here's the deal. Sometimes we treat church the same way. That we think the whole goal is to just lock it up, close it up, keep it and preserve it just the way it is so that nothing ever changes and we don't ever run the risk of ever messing anything up so that when Jesus gets here, he'll be so impressed that we've taken all the gifts that he's given us and we've buried him in a napkin somewhere. There's a parable about that and it doesn't go well for the poor fool that puts the talent in that napkin and buries it. This is calling us to an active effort. Let God work in us. Ephesians is all about God working in us. We have banners hanging in this auditorium that affirm that. Make every effort to what? To keep unity, preserve it. How do you do that? Well, he mentioned some attitudes. He mentioned some attitudes that ought to shape our behavior. Humility, gentleness, patience. And bearing with one another in love. That sounds so pious, doesn't it? Bearing with one another in love. I mean, you can even get all poetic and sweet about that and talk about love bears. Like that one song that we sing, you know, love bears all things. And you picture the little love bears. They're kind of like care bears. And they, and they, they, they teach us to love. You know what that word means? That word means you need to put up with each other. That's what it's really talking about. He's saying it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. There's always an episode on every long-running sitcom that they used to have. And I know I've got TV on the brain right now, and that's okay uh, if it keeps you interested. But I want to make this point. And you'd always have two people that can't stand each other. And you know what you had to do with them when they couldn't stand with each other? The writers would always lock them in a safe somewhere, you know? they get locked in a safe or a meat locker. And then they'd have to learn to love one another. They'd have to learn to be friends again. And then they wouldn't be fighting so much. You and I are locked in a safe in this world. We're in a meat locker. And we need to learn to bear up with one another. We need to learn to be patient and put up with one another. It doesn't sound very poetic, but I love the fact that Paul is just getting real about this. Not only are you going to share with each other when there's a need, but sometimes when we get on each other's nerves, we're going to learn to put up with each other. Why? Because it's worth the effort to maintain unity. Let me warn you, it's not the same thing as just avoiding an argument when someone's cranky. Avoiding 
avoiding bad behavior and just letting people away with it, that's, the not, that's not the same thing as keeping unity. Sometimes keeping unity looks like sitting down with one another and saying, we've got to sort something out here. And what's going to drive us to do those difficult things and have those difficult conversations is because we believe that unity is worth it. We believe that it's worth it. Why? Why is it so important? Well, for two reasons. One is disunity keeps people from Christ. When I was learning Spanish to go on mission trips, mission trips with my friend Paul Kreitz, who's down in Guatemala, that the, um, our team is working with for the next two weeks, But when I was learning Spanish, I was learning Spanish with a friend that Paul introduced me to. He wasn't a believer. He said that he didn't believe in God. And I asked him why. I wanted to know how, you know, what had happened to him that he didn't believe in God. He said, it's because I look around and I see churches here that hate churches here. And I see churches here that wear a different name than churches here. And I see churches and they don't get along. And he says, with all of that, that can't be genuine. Now, folks, I'm not saying that he's got a point. But I am saying this, that when we fight, people give up on God. May God help us. Do we not understand? People are losing their relationship with God because God's people can't get along with one another. Isn't that horrible? I mean, we ought to be showing the world how we overcome these differences because we believe that Jesus Christ is bigger than our problems. Second reason why it's so important. Because for God's plan for unity to take place, Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus Christ had one faith in God, that God would overcome death and shame and overcome the crucifixion, and transform a horrible thing into a way of salvation. Jesus Christ had that one faith, and he was willing to go to the cross. Now, if he is willing to do that for the sake of unity, then what? You tell me what you and I can put on the table and say, well, okay, Jesus went to the cross, but this doesn't compare to that. You'll be hard-pressed to come up with something that isn't just melted in the light of the cross and forces us to realize that if Jesus went to the cross, then we had better be about his vision and mission of unity in Christ just as seriously as he was. Amen. So, If Christ made that effort, then can't we make an effort as well? It's so important. We come to God, the one Father. He's your Father. And I want you to know that. And I want you to know that He's not going to turn His back on you. But if you will come to Him with that one faith, with with that one trust, express it in that one baptism, trust in that one baptism, then that one Spirit, that one Lord, that one Father is the one who becomes, is the one who calls you to an identity in Christ. As we stand and sing this song, 
There's going to be shepherds here who want to pray with anybody, who will receive anybody who wants to be baptized into Christ. There's going to be shepherds in room 100. We're going to stand, we're going to sing this song, and we're going to confess our unity. So sing out and sing this song together as we thank God for the unity He has given us.